guys, Jim Cox, and I'm here today with an interview with Charles Holden. Uh, he's a history professor at St. Mary's College of Maryland, and we had been talking over the summer about doing a chat about conservatism in America and uh, kind of how it developed and what it means for today. So, Chuck, thanks for taking the time to uh, chat today. Thanks, Jim. Good to be back with you again. Awesome. So, um, tell us a little bit about your background as far as with um, uh, the work that you do at St. Mary's and your uh, scholarship and so forth. Sure. So, I teach U.S. history at St. Mary's, and right now I pretty much teach the whole span of it. Uh, so, anything from like the 1760s all the way up through the end of the Cold War. Um, I, I offer classes in that wide range. Um, in my own work as a historian, I got started, I, I, went, I got my PhD from Penn State, and I got started as a historian exploring the changes in conservative Southern thought, in particular in my dissertation, uh, where I looked at some South Carolinians from the 1830s to the 1930s. So that, that gave me some, um, some, you know, I got steeped in, in the history of conservative thought as a graduate student and through my dissertation and, and the first book I wrote, which came out of my dissertation, uh, which, again, looks, focuses on South Carolina and its, its conservatism. So that, that gave me a, a, you know, a pretty good grounding in just in the, the overall history of American conservative thought. Now, my, my work since then is, has moved away from uh, studying conservatives. Um, I looked at academic freedom in the South in the 1920s and 30s. Mm. Although, in the, the first podcast you and I did, um, I, I was a, kind of a return to conservatism um, when... Uh, I was a co-author of a book on Spiro Agnew that came out last fall. So, mm. uh, so yeah, so my own work as a, as a historian has, has led me into studying conservative um, over the past 20 years. Awesome. So why don't you share a little bit about what you learned about um, the development of conservative thought, I guess, um, from your experience in the southern United States and kind of just kind of the development. I'm, I'm, I'm glad we, you know, this came up and we were talking last time. I think it's a really worthwhile topic because today it's it's really confusing as to just what what is a, a conservative. And um, so I think it would be helpful, like you said, for me to just kind of back up and and give your give your listeners a a quick tutorial on just the, the an overview of, of the history of American conservatism and. I will try to keep it as straightforward as possible, but, you know, full disclaimer, it's really complicated. All right. It's a really complex topic, so... Actually, um, before, we, before we do that, like, sure. what, why don't we just identify, like, what is conservative, what does liberal exactly. mean? Yeah. Well, yeah, exactly. So that's what I, that will be my starting point. That, okay. Right. That, um, um, you know, when we go back to the beginning of the country in the 1770s and 80s, they didn't use the word conservative, right? It didn't really come into, into use as, as a political 
um, adjective until the, the well into the 1800s. But when we look back, what we can see um, is that conservatives of that founding generation, right, that, that their core beliefs, they believed in a what they would call a natural hierarchical order in society. And this was, you know, usually attributed to God's design, right? And, and these hierarchies, of course, are fairly predictable. They're racial hierarchies, they're gender hierarchies. Americans of the founding generation also believed in what they called a natural aristocracy, as opposed to what they saw as an unnatural um, inherited aristocracies of Europe, right? Mm. George III, for example. Uh, they also believed in, in, in this idea of natural law, that laws, that the laws that govern communities or societies or just human behavior generally, that these are a discoverable part of the natural world, just like the laws of gravity govern in the physical world, that you can figure them out, right? Now, uh, a good way of looking at what defines a conservative in this generation and, and actually in any generation is also what they're afraid of. So they're, they're afraid of the masses, right? They're uh, the masses, uh, and to them, the masses are the non-property owners, which is almost everyone else. The masses are unruly, uh, they can be unreasonable, uh, they are subject to coercion and the political decision-making because they're not property owners. So, in that founding generation, then, these fears of the masses translate into fear of democracy itself, just a fear of letting too many people have access to the vote or to office holding. Now, they would have said that that those fears, that the response to those fears, limiting the vote, for example, was not just to keep all the power to themselves. They would have said that, that power has to be restricted to the property owners because property owners have this, this vested interest in the stability of the entire community, and therefore... You know, the well-being of the community would balance out any kind of aggressive, naked self-interest. Right? Mm. And this is something to their, to their, you know, giving them the benefit of the doubt. This is something that most of that first generation took pretty seriously. It's what they called having virtue, right? Mm. But, of course, it comes at the price of not letting non-property holders in the community have a say in who gets to govern. So, um, so that, in, in a nutshell, is is what we can see as, as kind of the, 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 the founding principles of, of American conservatism. Now, when we jump ahead to the mid-1800s, the conservative base, if you will, it really is rooted in the southern defense of slavery, added now to this persistent fear of democracy. So the context here is that by the 1830s, 40s, 50s, as the northern economy is moving more toward a market-driven, commodity-producing economy, some small manufacturing, southerners see that their slave-owning society is at risk. Right? You have a northern society that celebrates the upward uh, social mobility of someone like Abraham Lincoln, for example, and that that really is at odds with a Southern society that still believes in a society rooted in hierarchies, plural, but especially white over black. So we can fold back now this, this conservative fear of democracy 
to the Southern viewpoint, right? When American voters elect Abraham Lincoln as president, this is you know, Southerners' worst fears uh, confirmed. Right? And we also start to see, Jim, we also start to see the uh, persistent conservative inclination toward conspiracy theories, right? Mm. That in this case, the South is convinced that the North had become this giant abolitionist conspiracy just poised to take their slaves away. Well, by far, both Northerners were not abolitionists, right? Mm-hmm. Even well into the Civil War. Yeah. Right? But, but there it is. Um, we move forward, jump into the late 1800s, really the age of industrialism. Conservatism uh, reconfigures. Um, it, it's a different context. Conservatism in the late 1800s now becomes rooted in the defense of social Darwinism. Hmm. Right? Do people, I like to ask my students, do dates matter? You bet they do, right? Darwin comes out with his theories in 1859. Uh, social Darwinism then becomes popular in the late 1800s, and this is a view which holds that society sorts itself out, quote-unquote, naturally, by the survival of the fittest. And mm. in this sorting out, we see now the economic theories, the old economic theories of people like Adam Smith from the late 1700s, that these become really handy to this, this type of conservatism. The, mm. the old laissez-faire, classical economic theory of an unregulated, unfettered industrial capitalism, just, just out there doing its thing. And we can connect these two back to social Darwinism wow. very, very plainly, right? So, can we pause for a second? Because sure. this... So, I mean, that's such a leap from where it was, like, pre-1860, because what, as you were talking, what I was seeing was the South was basically trying to preserve in a static state society. Like the the essence that they're, it's perfect the way it is, you know, that there's no need for economic progress. Whereas in the North, you have this kind of um, unfettered, you know, like you said, uh, people rising or business owners rising um, based on their merit, which um, economic progress leads to unpredictable outcomes. And then but in the space of, like you said, 10, 15, 20 years, you have conservatism shifting literally to the opposite extreme and taking the northern view of, or not the northern view, but just uh, the fact that, you know, progress unhindered is the goal instead of being in a static state, right? Yeah, that's right. That's crazy. So, yeah, so, well, it, it is, right? And what it, you know, so the question is, well, well how do they make that leap, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, the answer actually is, is, is pretty simple. They lost the war. Their society was destroyed, mm. right? There, there was just, you know, there was, slavery was gone. It was ended, right? And, and so... So you can really, this is, by the way, this is exactly the topic of my dissertation in the first book, is how, how do they make this leap? How do they make this uh-huh. reconfiguration? Mm. Um, 
and they 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 begin. You know, there, there's no going back. On, on the one hand, you, you're not going to reestablish literally slavery. I mean, I mean, you know, you're able to reconfigure a southern economy where black workers are not going to get a fair shake, but it's it's literally not slavery anymore. Um, and they find themselves surprisingly malleable to these new ideas uh, coming out of social Darwinism that nature, right, that just nature itself determines who is the fittest and who isn't, right? So, you know, even if, if, the, if it's not slavery that is, that is reinforcing those, those hierarchies, uh, but it's about just nature, the survival of the fittest that is producing these hierarchies, in their view, of course, um, they, they can accept that. They find by the 1880s and 1890s that, yes, that, that, that rings true to them. Mm. Um, and they don't, it's not like they're all reading Charles Darwin or Herbert Spencer, a social Darwinist, but these, these social Darwinist views find a way of, of working themselves into just the American, you know, rhetoric of the day uh, in, in terms of these stories of, of just kind of a natural order, a natural, you know, this group, you know, has the ability to adapt and survive, and that group doesn't. Hmm. Um, and you don't need to be a, a scientist, right, to accept that kind of notion. And, and they find that they can, and they find that they can pretty easily. Right. Um, and so in that sense, then, you know, Southern conservatism and Northern conservatism, there's, there's not much uh, distinguishing them anymore, even though, as you're, you're, you're right, you know, 20, 30 years prior, you know, they, were, they looked at the world in very, very different ways. Mm. Right? And, and the, 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 you know, the, the event that really um, breaks it all apart is the war. Right? They, they lost the war. That, that slave-owning society is not coming back. And they, 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 they just enter a new kind of, of universe there um, of, 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 of putting their world back together. How do you, you, know, how do you defend uh, your belief in a natural hierarchy if the old slave-owning society is gone? Well, it turns out there, there were plenty of ways to do it, and so they did. Hmm. All right. So, um, so the connection now between this kind of social Darwinism sorting out and this classical economic sorting out, these go very nicely together, right? That just as, you know, just as, as you know, the, the view of capitalism is that, that it, you know, rewards the thrifty and the innovative, right, and sorts out the winners and the losers all by itself, this self-regulating, unregulated, self-correcting capitalism, so too did it seem that society sorts itself out into the fittest and all you had to, and unfittest, and all you had to do was look around, and it would be self-evident who had survived the struggle, hmm. right? So, so, all right. So let's let's look at the other side. Then, what is it then that this generation of, of conservatives fear? They fear labor unions because that would be meddling in the economy. They fear regulation, eight-hour day, for example. That, in their view, would be meddling in the economy. They still fear democracy because if all these poor working-class people have the vote, they may elect. You know, members of Congress or a governor or a mayor who shares their views, so there's still the fear of democracy. And then, just to kind of roll the timeline forward here, continue to do that, sure enough, come 1932, 
these conservatives had reason to fear when in the depths of the Great Depression, voters sent Franklin Roosevelt to the White House. Mm -hmm. So, you know, right, so now we look at, at, at this kind of 1930s style conservatism, and what do we see in the New Deal? We see just a path-breaking period of the federal government creating safety nets and creating programs of assistance, you know, the Social Security Act, Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act, right, the Right to Bargain Collectively, the Home Owners Loan Act, uh, the Fair Employment Practices Committee, and on and on. So the, the legacy of the New Deal, where you have big change on a large scale and often backed up with a with a Roosevelt-style rhetoric that, that often vilifies the financial elites of the country. This horrifies conservatives, right? And so their reaction against really New Deal precedents and quote-unquote big government, you know, this has been a consistent theme of conservatives ever since, mm. right? So, um, all right, so, so let's, let's move into the post-World War II era. And we'll see, in addition to the continued opposition to kind of the New Deal legacy, uh, obviously now in the Cold War, conservatives add an intense fear of communism as well. Mm. So the conservative fear of communism from the late 40s all the way through the 80s is going to be used to oppose virtually all the social political movements toward a more inclusive small b democratic society from that era and another kind of sorting out we're starting to see Jim is the fact that many of those movements were supported eventually by the democratic capital D democratic party and that meant then the conservatives began to gather almost exclusively in the modern republican party so how do they do that how does this work right the fear of communism uh, and used to oppose right, all of these social movements. So I'm teaching a class right now, the Civil Rights Movement at St. Mary's, and, and the fear of communism was used to attack the Civil Rights Movement. Southern conservatives during the Cold War believed that their, what they would have called their local traditions of segregation, that this was simply a part of their way of life. They used that phrase all the time. This is a way of life. And they, they would have layered over that a belief that this is just how God intended it. And so, you know, who but a communist would want to undo that? I mean, they, this is literally the question they're asking. Who but a communist would want to undo that? So King and the leaders of Southern Christian Leadership Conference and the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee and so forth, they are constantly accused of being secretly communist. Mm -hmm. um, and not just by segregationists either, right? J. Edgar Hoover believed that King was a communist. Then uh, the fact that under LBJ, the federal government does put its weight behind the Civil Rights Movement with the Civil Rights Act, Voting Rights Act, 64 and 65, this then translates easily into the conservative fear of big government, mm. right? But as we broaden our lens a little bit, you can also see conservatives during these years begin to sound the alarm against what they call secularism as well, especially in public education. Right? Um, what you see in the 60s in particular is public educators begin to 
take into account the religious diversity of their student because, you know, by not having daily prayer at school, for example. But, but for conservatives, this is a movement led by godless communists, right? Who else but a godless communist would take prayer out of school? And mm. I, you can still you can see the, the, the kind of the conspiracy tradition moving forward there as well. Look at the women's rights movement, the women's movement in the late 60s and early 70s. You know, women are able to take more control over their life decisions. Roe v. Wade, do I get married or not? Do I have kids or not? Do, can a woman go to law school, med school, Congress, right? To conservatives, this is an attack on what you now start to see in the 60s and 70s referred to as the quote-unquote traditional family. Hmm. And that, yeah, that brings along with it traditional gender roles, hmm. right? So, sure enough, the women's movement will be accused of being godless, communist, un-American because it upset older notions of order and naturally or, or divinely sanctioned social uh, organizations like family. So, can right. we pause here for a second? Yep, yep. So, am I right to then assume that conservatives are just old white guys? by the 60s, because this view here uh, of this kind of Cold War conservatism, and especially as Cold War conservatism is is brought to bear against these various social and political movements, that is starting to appeal to uh, younger, uh, predominantly white, yeah, younger white people as well. Um, it's appealing to uh, people in the suburbs. Right. Um, it's appealing to it's starting to appeal to some white working class people as well. You know, look at what the Great Society does. So uh, on the one hand, the Great Society of uh, Lyndon Johnson, on the one hand, it is throwing its weight behind the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But it's also putting its weight behind economic opportunity programs for urban centers. Mm. Uh, head start for poor families, right? And these are now starting to be attacked as big government programs that are just channeling hard, hard-earned taxpayer dollars to what they would have considered the undeserving poor. Hmm. Well, you you formulate it like that now, and sure enough, by the late '60s and by the early '70s, you can appeal to far more than just old white guys, right? Yeah, uh, and they do. And they do, right? This is we really see this in, in Nixon and Agnew, right? Where they're they're making a hard charge for, uh, you know, the, uh, the what they used to call the hard hat voter, right? That white working class guy, uh, who who you know maybe twenty five years old, right? Um, and they're finding some success in that as well, hmm. right? Um, uh, and women, and women, you know, some women who are more comfortable with these traditional notions of family and gender roles, right? They they look out at the women's movement and find that find it very unsettling. Mm. Um, and um, so, right, so it, it's definitely not just old old white guys. So is it uh, is it fundamentally is it fear of change that drives this kind of psychological thinking? amount of, of, of the conservative ideology is rooted in just a fear for change. Um, 
the old the old conservatives of of the late 1700s, early 1800s, they would have said that that what defines them as conservatives was the fear of, of change for the sake of change or change coming too rapidly. Um, but by the time you get to the 20th century, and certainly by the time you get to the post-World War II, there is a kind of uh, dug-in quality to conservatism where it just, it just seems to be opposing change, period, in some regards. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, look, I mean, this is, this, is, this is fuzzy stuff here when you talk about conservatism or, or any kind of ideological track, right? Um, it, it's not always perfectly consistent, um, as, uh, as I think apparent, right? Um, um, but right, so they can they can oppose, for example, a conservative of the late 1960s might oppose a uh, in the name of, of you know not liking big government, they might oppose um, a a program designed to help um, African Americans in an in an urban center, right? But they might turn around and absolutely support a federal program that helps poor farmers in Nebraska. Right, um, and that looks inconsistent, right? But in their eyes, they they've also adopted this idea of an undeserving poor, and it'll come as no surprise to your listeners that that undeserved idea of an undeserving poor is often expressed in racial terms. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, so what? The, the, you know, the conservatives, though, kind of my last. My last um, uh, time period here, the conservatives have finally have their day politically with the election of Reagan in '80, mm. with a big assist from religious groups like Jerry Falwell's Moral Majority. And since the '80s, then we what have we seen? We've seen very successful attacks on all the things conservatives have feared through the years. So. You know, in the name of economic liberty or traditional family values or local control versus big government, right, and on and on, right. We've seen rollback, right, the rollback of the New Deal, Great Society legacy. You know, EPA regulations dismantled whenever the GOP is in control, banking deregulation, mortgage industry deregulation, all in the name of creating more economic, you know, liberty in their view. Mm. We see. We see the rollback on voting rights, right? Giving yeah. the states more latitude to suppress the vote, Shelby versus Holder. We've seen the rollback on Roe versus Wade in the states, we most definitely have. Mm-hmm. Right? We've seen the rollback of worker protection and constant attacks on on union labor generally and successful, right? Mm-hmm. I mean how many how many American workers belong to unions these days? It's down to like ten percent. Yeah. Right? So um, at the same time, though, Jim, and this is where I think we, we can kind of transition into where we are today. At, at the moment of their kind of political success, some interesting things happened um, in the 1990s where, in my view anyway, conservatism, the idea, becomes big business. I mean, it, the idea itself becomes a big business with the rise of Rush Limbaugh. Well, let's hold on there for a second because I actually that 
I was chomping at the bit to as you were talking, but um, this goes back to really the '70s and Milton Friedman, right? And the yeah, rise yeah. of Milton Friedman and the Chicago School in terms of yeah. shareholder capitalism being the driving force was a radical break from what we had before the '70s. And I don't know how I don't know if you've read. Uh, is it uh, Richard or Robert uh, Heibrunner's uh, Limits of American wow. Capitalism? But um, it's a great, it was written in the 60s, and it's a great illustration of what came out of the Great Depression as really kind of a five-legged stool between um, business, government, experts, labor, and the military working together to basically have a balanced economy. And the success of that can be seen in, you know, rising wages and rising standards of living through the 70s. And then that stopped with 80 and with the changes that came with this new economic philosophy, which then really goes into, like you said, hyperdrive, in the 90s. So just to throw that in there. Yeah, yeah. Um, No, you're right. I mean, this is, you just see the return of of really what what I would say is is a a much older view of of capitalism and and the relationship between the economy and the government. It, It really, in many ways, by the time you get to the 80s and 90s, um, is a harkening back to the Gilded Age yeah. of, the, of the 1880s, right? And it's just, and and it and it and it gets, you know, it gets it gets it gets wrapped up in in this very narrow notion of economic liberty, liberty, right? That that you, what you need to do is just get all of these, you know, government regulations, just get them out of the way, and 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 let the market do its thing. And um, and it, it is it's, it's ironic to me that you know the, the, the net effect has been to break apart what, what you were just describing for Heilbronner, right? This this this, this really you know, coordinated in many ways relationship between between government, industry, labor, military, right? Um, I mean they 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 were in conversation. Yeah, uh, they respected they, each other. Yeah. yeah, not that they agreed on everything, but but they're in conversation, and and so by the late 1800s, then it you you just see this this, this hardcore um, laissez-faire view view return, and I I think so the question is well why why then, and and I do think that there is a I think you can fold in the reaction against right the civil rights movement's success. Mm. The civil rights movement success, the Great Society success, where you know where there are more federal dollars, you know, being used to lift up the poor, um, and 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 I also think you have to add in the the, the economic struggles of the 1970s in particular. Yeah, yeah. Right? When, when with the oil crisis, crises, plural, uh, when you start to get some deindustrialization happening, there's just a sense. Uh, that you know, we we just can't afford all these anymore, and 
And and why is my tax dollar going to help that person out anyway, right? And and the the, the racialized language here becomes a real cudgel, right? Um, that 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 feeds this notion of an undeserving poor. Yeah. And it really starts to break that that relationship apart. And it's you know once you start tugging at it or start breaking it apart, it, it you know the, the that logic can be very powerful. Why should my taxpayer dollars go to help that person? Well, and if you if you yeah. fast forward to, if you take that same uh, lost decade of the 70s, and they say that uh, history doesn't repeat itself, but it sounds a lot alike to That's today, right. and you look at, it's not Japan that was the rising power right. at the time in the 70s that was causing this this kind of blowback on the United States uh, economy, but today it's China, obviously. And right. you have that same dialogue going on where, you know, it's the loss of jobs, it's the exporting of jobs, and the inequality, the income inequality that's been developed. And, you know, we're seeing the same kind of aggression to the forces that would try to, you know, help the poor and right. try to get back to that sense of economic justice. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And, and, and I, I, you know, how we explain poverty in American society is so critical yeah, yeah. For, for how you then wrestle with, well, what, what, do we propose to do about it, right? And 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 you're right that that that, that the right has been has you know the drumbeat, the relentless drumbeat of of that life is just all about individualism, right? And um, and and continuing to, to to pump out this idea of an undeserving poor that they, that somehow they just haven't tried hard enough, yeah, right? Um, it's it, it's very appealing even to people. Uh, other people who are on kind of the wrong end, wrong end of the economic forces these days, mm-hmm. right? That you know, well, I deserve help, you know, but but those people don't. Yeah. Um, and you know what's amazing to me, Jim, is and I think we we touched on this last time we talked is that those you know the attacks on whether it's the New Deal legacy or the Great Society legacy. Um, uh, yes, they've ended up hurting the poor, but what they've really done is hollow out the middle class as yes, well. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, because so many of those New Deal programs and Great Society programs, you know, whether it's a, a, a mortgage program or a student loan program, and what they did was they shored up the middle class and they gave it the chance for sons and daughters of the working class to get into the middle class by going to college and, and, and getting a degree and then go, you know, whereas your dad was a coal miner, nothing wrong with being a coal miner, but, you know, if you can send your son or daughter to college, maybe they are an accountant or a doctor or a lawyer, you know. Um, and, and so as you hollow out those programs in the name of getting rid of big government, we shouldn't be the least bit surprised that the wealth gap over the past 20, 30 years has has increased, yeah. um, and and it has increased, you know, 
white working it's injured white working class people mm-hmm. uh, along the way. There's no question about it. Well, one of I the form, one of the uh, the argument that you know um, they're lazy or they should just pull themselves up by their bootstraps. I mean, fundamentally ignores one reality, which is it's not a level playing field. You know, it's people are starting off with less opportunity to be able to pull themselves up. There's, even if you're trying to compete, you're competing in an uneven playing field, which favors certain groups over others. There's no way that there's going to be that success. And until you have a level playing field, which I think is really what people demand, um, well, people outside of, you know, the conservative movement, would be, would be, uh, like, that, that's really the key, is that it's just not a level playing field. Yeah, absolutely right. And, and, you know, what I what I was sketching out for you and for your listeners that this this kind of well, here's what conservative means at this period of time. You go back to the 1870s and 80s, and even at the high point of this this combination social Darwinist laissez-faire um, back conservatism, there were people back then who were saying, "But this isn't real. <laughs> what you're describing is not real." Right. right? That. That, that, that nature sorts out the fittest and the unfittest and that, and that laissez-faire capitalism, you know, just sorts out naturally winners and losers, right? Because both of those imply that, that everyone is in the contest equally, and yeah. they're not. Yeah. And so even back then, there were people saying, this is nonsense, <laughs> right? Um, but, you know, they... Their voices don't carry the day, and what's rare is or are those moments. New Deal, one time, mid sixties, Great Society. Those moments when those those voices do carry the day, and 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 even looking at, you know, when you look at the New Deal program and the Great Society program, you know they were, you know they were they were bold for their time certainly, but it's not like. You know, they, 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 it's a radical attempt to, to totally reshape American society. They're reformed. Yeah. Right? They're, they're, not, they're not upside down, you know, revolutions. They're reformed. And, and still the conservative re- reaction is that, you know, the, the world is coming to an end. Mm. Right? So the, the progressive view has, has always had um, a, an uphill struggle in, in carrying the argument um, uh, of the day, for sure. So, let me ask you this. I mean, at, at its core, it seems like there's a difference in the value of a human life. So, if you if you look at, like, for example, the teaching teachings of Jesus Christ, and you just look at, you know, um, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it's inherently, I would say, egalitarian. Right. It's it gives value to the poor, to the disabled, to the minorities. And you 
you don't see that there's a there's a contradiction there for conservatives because it seems like obviously there's not the same value to a human life that's brown or black or female or whatever just different just different than what the powers that be would see in a smoking room or a boardroom or you know their club within the uh, religious part of the conservative movement. Um, um, there's, there's no doubt about it. I mean, you know, so my family is Catholic. My family is I was raised Catholic. And, and just even within that realm, right, there are serious splits between the social justice Catholics yeah. and the kind of the open-day conservative Catholics. And... And to the social justice Catholics, I have a, a, an uncle who's a Columban father. He's very, very, very much on the social justice side of the Catholic spectrum. To him, the, the, you know, the thrust of the New Testament, the life of Jesus, is crystal clear, right? That, that you need to, to look out for one another and yeah. help one another, right? Yeah. Um, and, it, it, I mean, it's just, it, to him, it's just as clear as, as clear as day, right? Um, the best I can offer as an explanation for how a, a religious-minded person does not arrive, or especially a Christian with the, the lessons of the New Testament, you know, um, how they arrive at a different conclusion, I, I guess, is, is that, you know, the, the other parts of the Bible that just say things like, you know, the poor you shall always have, and, and so... What does that mean? That means, well, you're just always going to have poor people, and and you know you you know shouldn't be mean to them, but you you know your obligation to them are your obligations to them are are you know, fairly limited, right? Uh, because after all, the poor you shall always have with you. Um, so I, I guess that's that's how they arrive at that at the view of 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 being a, a religious con, you know conservative, but not you know, not supporting a, a, a you know a government program that that might help the poor. Um, you know, if you look, if you if you know, I do think there's a lot in the conservative mind today that that views so much. And let, let me work in our conspiracy theories here that that, that values so much of of the public realm as as this big conspiracy against them, right? Um, Public education is a conspiracy. Science is a conspiracy, um, and, and let alone, you know, government in the hands of progressives. Um, um, I, so, you know, I guess you put all, put that all together, and 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 you know, you get to a pretty dark place. Hmm. So, where do we go from here? I mean, we're looking at it's. September 2020, and I would say that, you know, there are a lot of conservatives in America, I, I think of George Will being one of them, right. who actively oppose the current administration, right. and yet as being not, not conservative as all, at all. Um, 
something on a on a whole different dimension. Yeah. Um. So where do we go from here with this kind of anomaly that we're facing come November? So when you look at when you look at like the support that Trump has from thirty or forty percent of the people who, regardless of all the things that have happened and what he's done, I mean, is it just straight straight out fear that drives their motivation to support a Trump that you know the conspiracy theories and so forth? Is that what really drives? The whole dynamic of Trump's success. I think it's a lot of. I think it drives a lot of it. Yeah, you know, you remember in 2016, we heard a lot about economic anxiety, right? That that it's it's these Rust Belt voters experiencing this economic anxiety, and that that's what really that's what really drove them to Trump. He was going to get in there, and he was going to speak up for the little guy. That 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 you know that deindustrialized voter in Ohio. He's going to be their voice. Um, and so, you know, a lot of pundits and a lot of very smart people said, oh, that, that must be it. Um, well, <laughs> where, where are we now? How's yeah. that guy doing now? He's not, yeah. he's not doing any better than yeah. he was in 2016. And so I think we've had to, you know, reconfigure our explanations here. And, and, and I think it is just this real, this, drumbeat of appealing to the worst instincts, right, in people, 
um, including the racism and the sexism and the, and the xenophobia and the conspiracy theories, you know. Um, and look, I mean, if all you do is get your news brought to you by Fox or Rush Limbaugh, if, if that's your only source of, of you know, explanation to the world, then, then, then it's not a conspiracy, right? Then, then this is, you know, then Black Lives Matter really is a threat to the suburbs, and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I don't know, so, you know, maybe the, the bigger question is, you know, one day Trump's going to be gone. What do we do about Fox News? You know, what do we do about Breitbart? And, and boy, I don't know. That's a, you know, that's a, that's a tougher question in some ways. Mm. Because I think they're, they're, look, you know, the rise of Rush Limbaugh on the Fox, you know, Fox Media Universe, you know, they, in many ways, they, they turned this, um, this, this anxiety and this rape baiting into big business, right? And they had hours of airtime that they have to fill. And so, you know, they can call themselves conservative voices, um, and they, of course they do, and they have, but they've got all these hours to fill, and, and so you don't have to watch Fox very long before, no. you know, the, you know the, the racism and the sexism and the xenophobia and the conspiracy theories start to trickle out. Well, that's what, that's what these people have been consuming now, almost exclusively, um, for 20, 30 years, because part of the Fox message and the Rush Limbaugh message is everybody else is lying to you. We're mm-hmm. not. Well, one of the so I completely agree, and and one of the one of the uh, problems I see going forward is here we're looking at really I think we're already several years into a depression. Like the the market performance and gyrations really don't reflect the economic realities of what's going on on Main Street or for business. And so not only do you have that kind of lack of economic growth or opportunity, but then you factor in what's going on with climate change and the, the real changes that are going to happen, whether it's in terms of food supply or storm damage, fires, raging destroying property and just overall chaos that that brings, let alone, you know, the fact that, I mean, we saw it with Syria with migrants fleeing a society that was basically devastated by, you know, a drought and then turned into a civil war, which then obviously devastated 30 million people. And, you know, we're going to see more of that. So the fact is that those conditions then feed into that whole kind of uh, thirsty machine for what's feeding that fear. Yeah, it, it does. It, it can. Um, I, I just heard, oh, I was listening to another podcast, um, uh, a report out that over the next 15, 20 years, something like a billion people are going to live in a place that's uninhabitable because of climate change, and, yeah. and where are they going to go, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And I wonder, though, Jim, I'd be curious what your thoughts are on this. So what you're getting at is, is this, this impending sense of something's going to have to give here. Yeah. Right? And I think, and, I think actually, fun, people have fundamentally felt this for at least the yeah. past five to ten years. Yeah. It's yeah. been an undercurrent, yeah. but they haven't been able to identify it, and now the, the fear has gotten really tangible. I, I agree, and I, what I was going to ask is, I wonder if COVID hasn't oh, yeah. laid bare this, you know, this, this sense of, we can't just, we can't just, you know, do a little reform around the edges. Yeah. Right, that, that COVID has laid bare the fact that, that, you know, we've got to think in big, bolder terms here. Yeah. Um, or, or, we'll, or, you know, and, and, and just even just waiting for a vaccine to come along and everyone get a needle in their arm, uh, that's not going to be enough because, as you say, you know, the economic damage just from COVID yeah. is going to be with us for a long time, let alone adding climate change on top of it. Right? Well, well, I think it becomes, the challenge is it becomes a matter of, you know, I got to keep mine, forget about everybody else. Yeah. So you get into that kind of this yeah. selfless, selfish isolationism that, you know, obviously then gets fed by the conspiracy theories. You know, right. my first political candidate that I worked for was Paul Songus. And I'll never forget, oh, yeah. he, um, you know, he ran as a guy who was socially liberal, but fiscally yeah. conservative. And the whole idea of fiscal conservatism is you have a balanced budget, you don't go too far beyond your means, you have rational policies, and, you know, fiscal conservatism now is literally dead. And, you know, yeah. we, we see that just from the behavior of what's going on with the Fed over the past year, past six months, you know, they've completely changed the rule book. And uh, so yeah. there was all this talk before COVID, this fear of, modern monetary theory that, you know, liberals were going to use it to fund these outrageous projects to, you know, build windmills and give poor people money. Well, now they're basically using MMT, but, you know, the, the reality is it's being used to divert money to corporations and so forth. So, but but at the end, it's it's basically instituted this complete change of economic economic policy that I don't think people are either aware of um, the extent of, of what it means. Well, I'm sure you're right about that. I'm sure you're right about that, Jim. And that, but I, I you know, it, uh, what is it that's going to start to shake this loose? Well, I mean, We've got two huge crises, right? At least two, right? Between climate and COVID. And one avenue of change has always been politics, right? That, mm -hmm. that you know, if, 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 if the political will changes, um, the policy can too. Yeah. Right? Um, which, which and, and I suspect that I get the feeling that there's some people in the Trump world 
that, that realized this. In other words, I don't think it's an accident that after, you know, after Shelby versus the Holder case about voting rights, right, that, that conservative state governments have just constantly tried to suppress the vote. Yeah. I think there's a, yeah. that's, that's already kind of a rear guard action against, you know, against a kind of, uh, you know, a broad-based movement for, for big change. Um, but, you know, um, we'll, you know, we've got an election coming up, right? Then it's going to be hard to get turnout, but if the turnout's there, um, who knows, right? Now, look, I, I, in 1931, or even in early, mid-1932, if you'd have told people, well, here's what the federal government's going to be doing in 1934, they would have said, what? No, yeah. That's wild, really? Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet it happened. Yeah. So, you know, so you never know. Yeah. Yep. Well, I know we've uh, we have gone way on in terms of time, and <laughs> but uh, you know it's just been a great conversation, and I think this is a, a good place to kind of wrap things up at. Um, if people want to follow up with you in terms of the work you do at St. Mary's or your research, uh, how can they reach out to you? Sure. So they can always shoot me an email. Uh, my email address is, is cj. C.J. Holden, H-O-L-D-E-N, at S-M-C-M, that's St. Mary's College of Maryland, S-M-C-M.edu. Um, I'm also on Twitter at C.Holden07, those are the numbers, 07. Um, always happy to always happy to hear from people on Twitter as well. So either way, that'd be great. And yes, I, I absolutely encourage your listeners if they want to follow up on stuff that you and I talked about today, shoot me an email I'd love to hear from them awesome well I appreciate you taking the time to uh, chat and uh, look forward to our next topic and our next conversation it's always a pleasure Jim sounds great thanks a lot bud